And we're live with JavaScript Air. Hello, everyone. My name is Kent C. Dodds, and I am on site and live at um, KCDC. That's not Kent C. Dodds Conference. Um, that's the uh, Kansas City Developer Conference. And we're super excited to be here uh, to talk to some of the attendees and, and speakers here at the conference um, about what's going on at this JavaScript uh, or general developer conference. Um, so before I get into things too much, I just need to give a shout out to our sponsors that we appreciate so much. They're responsible for this microphone that I'm holding. And so hopefully the audio quality is better than some of the past uh, conference shows that I've done. Uh, but yeah, thanks to these sponsors. So our first, our premier sponsor is Egghead.io, and they have a library of bite-sized uh, development training videos, um, mostly centered around JavaScript, Angular, Node, uh, React, um, and Webpack. Shout out to um, my course that was released just last week. Um, and then our, uh, for our gold sponsors, we have Frontend Masters. They're a expert-led uh, workshop, uh, recorded workshop about uh, JavaScript and front-end topics. Um, it's super awesome. Go check them out. Uh, Track.js tracks bugs in your code before your customers notice them. And they have a cool telemetry timeline that allows you to see like the what the user was doing when the bug happened. So uh, check, check them out at trackjs.com. SparkPost is actually sponsoring this conference. They're here and they're awesome. Um, I recommend you check them out. They are email. Uh, so you can build something awesome with their SMTP relay or with their node library or their other like clients for other languages. And uh, yeah, you can send 100,000 emails a month for free. Crazy. And then WebStorm. Um, JetBrains is actually also supporting the conference. Uh, JetBrains Create as uh, like the company behind WebStorm. It's a really intelligent IDE for um, JavaScript. Uh, it's, it's really good. So I recommend you check that out. And then, as always, remember that this is a weekly show. So uh, next week, at the normal time, we'll have web animations. And uh, we'll be joined by Matthias, Sarah, and Rachel to talk about um, animations for the web, which is a pretty exciting topic. So I recommend you check that out. So uh, to get us started on our topics here, we're going to be um, talking, like I said, with speakers and um, with the uh, attendees. We're going to start out with an attendee, and that is Alex. Come on and join me, Alex. Hey, Ken. Hey, thank you for coming. Hey, thanks for having me. Do you want to give us a quick intro to yourself, who you are, uh, where you live, what, what you do? Yeah, so uh, my name is Alex Munda. I live here in Kansas City. Uh, I'm a full stack developer at Staples Promotional Products. And I also co-organized the uh, Kansas City JavaScript meetup. Sweet. Yeah, I want to talk to you about the, the organizing a meetup. Um, because I think some of the people who are um, watching or listening um, might be thinking about, like, uh, I kind of want to start a meetup. Um, and so, yeah, getting some of the, uh, your experiences uh, organizing would be great. Uh, but I first want to ask you about uh, attending KCDC. So um, have you attended other conferences before KCDC? Yes, I have attended other conferences, not JavaScript related, um, which this is awesome that it is more focused on JavaScript. Um, but yeah, and this is my first year here at KCDC. Cool. So what are, uh, what are some of the highlights of uh, the KCDC conference? So some of the highlights so far, the first day was uh, all pre-compilers, so like eight hour, four hour sessions. Um, I went to yours, your ES6 one. It was awesome. Um, highly recommend checking out the repo on GitHub. And uh, so that was really cool. Um, the first day, Keynote was great. Um, and then just jumping straight into sessions. There's 
two JavaScript tracks at this conference. Um, so that's probably uh, the biggest focus, I would say. Um, but if you're not into JavaScript, you can always go the .NET route or the data route, or there's kind of just like a be better at life route. And so that's kind of cool too. So yeah, it's been awesome. Well, yeah, this is kind of a unique conference for me because there are 13 tracks. And so there's so much to do. What, have you done anything uh, or, or like gone to any uh, sessions that weren't at all related to like your day-to-day -day work? Um, yeah, I kind of went to the functional programming and C sharp one, which is really, really interesting. Um, some of the same concepts that you would use in functional JavaScript all um, just kind of being used in C sharp, which it seems like there's a lot of overhead to do that in C sharp. So I would just say stick to node. But uh, <laughs> if you do want to use C sharp, uh, that's definitely something to check out. Very cool. So uh, let's shift over to the um, organizing piece of it. So um, uh, you organized the Kansas City uh, JavaScript uh, meetup here in Kansas City. So, uh, what are something some tips that you would give to somebody if they wanted to, or, or like if they if they're organizing a meetup? Yeah. So I would say just uh, you could do it by yourself, but it's always better to do with a group. Um, get a couple friends together that are passionate about something. In this case, it's JavaScript. Um, go to meetup.com. Uh, the startup fee is very minimal. Um, get your group. And then just kind of spam Twitter, get it out there, and uh, you will always find people that are interested in the same things you are, um, wherever you are. So that would be my advice to somebody trying to get something started uh, in any city. Cool. Now, food and venue are two like kind of key things for yes. uh, yes. meetups. So what? Uh, like, and obviously, you're not like paying that out of your pocket. Right. That would be like right. crazy expensive. Um, so, are is do you have any tips on uh, getting sponsors and and like, like you know in, uh, encouraging sponsors to to donate time and money? Definitely, yeah. So just kind of get the word out there. Uh, send them emails. Uh, tweet at them. They're always willing. You say, hey, we'll put your uh, your link on our meetup page if you just want to bring pizza to the next meetup or uh, do something like that. And usually, you will find that there are more sponsors than you can actually maintain so that's always a good problem to have so sweet sweet cool well go start a meetup it's good <laughs> okay uh thank you so much alex i really appreciate it yeah uh, thanks for having me yeah sure thing uh next we have joe so come on down joe thanks for coming on man thank you so uh joe why don't you uh give us a just a second introduction to yourself who you are where you work what you're interested in uh, my name is Joe Neverde. I work for a startup called Smart. Uh, we essentially uh, try to change patient behavior by um, helping them take their medication on time. We know if they've taken it or not taken it, and and so we try to intervene and and help change their behavior and hopefully have a better outcome. Interesting. So I'm I'm actually kind of interested about that. So are are these patients like forgetful or they don't want to or what are some of the like use cases of uh, your product? Um, really yeah forgetful it's all the above really um, uh, particularly the use case with our product is that uh, there's some very expensive drugs that it's a very uh, important not to miss and even even forgetting is a bad deal um, some drugs hey um, I forget I can take it tomorrow but there are some that I forget and it starts a whole new uh, therapy all from the start or oh, okay. uh, could could affect your life yeah that sounds kind of scary thank you for doing that um, cool so Joe, why don't you uh, give us a brief rundown of uh, what you're here at the conference for? What, what's your talk on? Sure. I'm here to speak. Um, I spoke on 
I, I think the title is called Deep Dive into Asynchronous Patterns in JavaScript. The gist of it is, is to give an overview of what's available in JavaScript to perform asynchronous actions. And then, of course, um, to sort of uh, talk about what the pitfalls of each of those and why you might choose one pattern over another. Okay, cool. So what, what were some of these uh, asynchronous patterns? Uh, for example, callbacks. That's been around since the dawn of time. Promises, uh, generators plus promises, async await, which is to come in the future. Um, so yeah. Cool. So um, is there any particular uh, like asynchronous pattern that works well for one scenario but not for another? Can you give us examples of that? Um, you know, I think it just depends on what libraries you're consuming. Some libraries have a, a callback interface, and so you're kind of forced into doing that. Some libraries provide callbacks and promises. Um, so it's really just the environment you're in. Uh, so just being aware of all the patterns and knowing how to apply them and knowing the pitfalls of each of those, I think that's what's important, not necessarily choosing one over the other. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think uh, that, that seems to be like a, a pretty good um, stance, uh, diplomatic stance even, <laughs> about um, these different uh, callback patterns. I, I think personally that it, it's good that we have all these different patterns available to us because our applications are, are varied and um, our programming styles are varied. Um, and it's, it's cool to be able to utilize these different, uh, different styles. Um, and JavaScript being just su such an asynchronous programming language, um, it's, uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So um, I want to ask you a little bit about speaking at conferences, because I imagine people listening or watching um, are really interested in um, like how you do it. How do you get into a conference? And so um, what, are, what are some tips that you would give to somebody who wants to go speak at a conference? Uh, you know, the tip I would suggest is submit some talk that even if you haven't prepared it yet, uh, it'll force you to do it. Um, there's nothing better than having some sort of deadline, I think, uh, to force you to uh, just learn about something. And, and really, it's all about just repeating what you've learned uh, and trying to do it in a, in a way that uh, other people can absorb what you've learned in a faster format. Um, so my tip is just do it. Uh, find something you're interested in. Maybe you have a little bit of expertise in. Uh, submit a talk, and if it gets accepted, now you have a date. Um, yeah. So. I, I've done that countless times. Yeah, that's fantastic <laughs> advice. Um, very good. I, I would um, ha, like asterisk that. Make sure that what you're submitting is possible. <laughs> oh, sure. Yes. Yes. I was considering uh, submitting for ElmConf right before Strange Loop, and uh, I was going to submit something that may or may not be possible, but I think I'll... Uh, I think I'll pass on that for now. Yeah, yeah, probably a good call. Um, I, yeah, like I, I've submitted some talks where I'm like, I, I've never actually done this before, but I know somebody else has done this. And so like it, it's definitely possible or like I could see in a, um, you know, a very uh, real way that this could be possible. Um, so yeah, I think that's a great way to learn new tech. Um, oh, and, and to there, just there's nothing it. better than having uh, sort of the deadline and the expectation that there's going to be potentially hundreds of people counting on uh, on you giving a you know a coherent speech <laughs> uh -huh. yeah very true cool is there any last things that you'd like to share with our viewers um, not really I, I really thanks for thanks for having me on here cool yeah thank you Joe all right we'll see you around the conference thank you <laughs> and next we'll have Corey come on down you're the next contestant on JavaScript air <laughs> Just joking. Uh, cool. So, Corey, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Kent. So, Corey, you're kind of like a, a stalwart here. You're like, you've been in Kansas City. You've been going to KCDC for a long time, right? Quite a while. I think this is the fifth year or so. 
and I don't know how old the conference is. It's about it's eight years. It's eight years. Yeah. Okay, so not since the beginning. Yeah, yeah in the beginning it was like a hundred people free conference, right? Yes. Well, the first year I went was free too, so I guess that would have been the third year. Yeah. That's very cool. It's now just for those listening, it is sixteen hundred people attending this conference. It's intense. You go to lunch and you, it's hard to find people you know. Go meet new people. Yeah, it's very cool. So, um, Corey, now you have uh, you had a workshop and you have three talks, right? Yes. That's a lot of work. I have you. issues. Yeah. yeah I, <laughs> I need to say no sometimes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, one of your talks is about talking at conferences, right? Do you want to talk about that? I, I like going meta. Yeah. So um, that talk is close to my heart because I started speaking because it, like a lot of people, I found it scary. So I thought I'll at least give it a shot. Now, I didn't ever expect to find that I really liked it. But as I've talked to more and more speakers, there's a lot of people that that way that thought, okay, I'll try it. And, and my frustration is there are a lot of people that feel so, so strongly that if they got up there, they'd be miserable. And I go, well, but until you've tried it, because it is nothing like when you were in high school and you were forced to get up there and explain how to tie your shoes in front of people, you're getting to talk about something that you're excited about. And you're talking to a room of people that had a choice between like at this conference, there were 12 other sessions they could have went to, but they walked in, they sat down in your room and they said, I want to listen to you for an hour. Yeah, They're voting for you. Yeah. And that is awesome. And that gives you so much energy to go, Oh, thank you. That is to give you to give me an hour of your life. That's that's really meaningful to me, and it it encourages me to make sure that I bring my A game. Um, but it also, in the same token, takes the pressure off because I go, I know they want to listen. They're really here to learn. So let let's do it. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great perspective to have. Like it is totally nerve wracking. Like even me as a, uh, someone who's uh, had an opportunity to speak at several conferences. Every single talk I give, I'm still nervous. So if mm -hmm. if you feel like you'd be nervous before giving a talk, like that's that's pretty normal, and that there's nothing Absolutely. wrong with that. Cool. So you uh, let's let's talk about some of the other talks that you're uh, giving at this conference. You just barely gave a talk comparing um, Knockout, Ember, React, and Angular. Yes. Kind of dangerous subject, right? <laughs> so yes. uh, why don't you talk a little bit about um, what uh, yeah what the content of that talk was all about? Well, so if I was to sum it up, there are no losers in this race, but I recognize that it is also really valuable to have an opinion on the matter. Uh, I, I don't believe in trying to be wishy-washy and just say, oh, everything's good, everything's happy. The fact is, everything has its benefits and has its downsides. And what I really wanted to focus on was the level of opinion that each of these has dictates the learning curve and also dictates the amount of fatigue that you have. So, for instance, I have felt a lot of fatigue as a React developer. Fatigue is as in, am I choosing the, the right way to do AJAX calls? Am I choosing the right way to handle promises? Should I, uh, before it was which flux implementation should I use? On and on. And that's why I created a starter kit. And one of the jokes that I had in there was, I created a starter kit to try to make it easier to make decisions for people, but there are 75 starter kits out there if you Google for it. And I'm not kidding, I'm not, I'm not making that number up. There are legitimately at least that many. So that can be overwhelming. And that I think is precisely why people are excited about Angular 2, because you just, if you choose Angular 2, you go read the docs, and then you're rolling. I mean, they have thought things through and, and covered those. Whereas in React, you will be making a ton of decisions and constantly questioning, well, should I follow that pattern or this pattern or that use this library? It's become a large portion of my job. And I have to have that luxury as a software architect. Other people may not have that luxury. So it's a really a tough call between all of them. But making it clear what the trade-offs are was my goal in there. Very cool. And I attended that talk. I thought it was great. Um, and you did make those trade-offs clear. Um, 
And then you also had uh, 12 point or 12 keys of professional JavaScript, right? Yes. So uh, yeah, can you give us a just a brief rundown of what that was about? Yeah, the brief summary was that you got to be the rock star at the end, <laughs> which, which probably looked scripted, but absolutely wasn't. I had no idea where you would fall on the list. But the whole idea of this talk was here are 12 uh, pretty fundamental things that I think would be really helpful for people to do. And I went in there knowing that the large majority of people are not doing probably even close to 12. And I will say throughout my career, I have not either. In fact, I put this list together basically saying after having a few months, having the luxury of being a software architect that's focused on the front end specifically, I was able to really think carefully about what I feel like we should always be doing. Um, and and it's it, there's nothing earth shattering here. I mean, ru running tests, minifying, linting, having an automated build of knowing every time that I hit save that all of this stuff happens automatically. But most people don't go through the work of setting all that up. So I wanted to see where the room sat, and that's why I, I posted up on YouTube the video, and you can see that Kent uh, gets to be the, the one person in the room that was doing all twelve. So uh, pretty pretty fundamental things. Yeah. I think if you're building a serious application, you should be doing these things. Mm -hmm. I was actually pleased to see uh, that there was an absence of like the hyped up features like hot module reloading like that's that's yeah. a cool feature it but cool. it's really not one of the key points to pro uh, javascript are, are, is there anything else that you intentionally left off of that list well i think it's interesting that hot, hot reloading never came to my mind as something that should be on there because it's also not possible everywhere um, very true yeah so my thing was I wanted something that was across the board and useful. And in fact, when you look at most of the talks that I try to do at conferences, this is my tip to speakers. I personally like to submit something to a conference that I feel like a lot of people at the conference will be interested in. And that depends greatly on the conference. So for for instance, my 12 keys pro JS, I probably wouldn't submit that to a uh, JavaScript specific conference because it would be too introductory. Um, but at other conferences that are more broad, that have people that are um, probably more fixated on the server than the client, then it's really useful because you go, okay, for a lot of people, um, JavaScript is their second language. And I feel like that's a good talk for people that, that are spending yeah, very true. most of their time focusing on the server side. Uh, I'm seeing more and more that, you know, JavaScript is swallowing the world. And what we're seeing is a fair number of developers that are doing JavaScript reluctantly. So yeah, I'm, I'm, and I was one of those until I kind of I turned the tide and decided, why don't I make this my specialty? Because I look around Kansas City and I go, there's just not enough JavaScript developers. And I know this because I'm interviewing them and it's hard to find people to interview. It, it really is. Of course, that's a problem across dev anyway, but it is particularly a problem here. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and I think it's only going to get more so. Uh, JavaScript is becoming even more ubiquitous than it already is. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, JavaScript's a good bet. <laughs> Cool. Um, so we, we've just got like a minute or two left. Um, you did have a workshop about React. Is that right? Uh, no. Or, so or not, not about React. My workshop was showing how to build a, basically a starter kit. I'm a big oh. believer in this idea of starter kits because uh, that, that was the summary of my 12 keys talk was all of these things that I say that we should be doing. If every time you have a new project, you get together as a team and say, what testing library should we use? How should we configure ESLint? What, where should we be putting our tests? Um, what assertion library? And the list goes on and on. Uh, how should we configure Babel? No, you're going to waste a whole bunch of time navel gazing. What you want to do is hit the ground running. So I say, one time, get together as a team. Look at all the starter kits out there. 
find inspiration and build your own and then make it yours. And I suggest put it out on GitHub. Maybe it'll, it'll catch fire. Ours has been great because effectively people are doing my job for me. My job was to keep that up. And now a lot of people are submitting pull requests because it, it got fairly popular. Didn't expect it. But the, um, the real key is now when we do something new, we don't have to have a conversation about it. When we do have conversations, it's about, hey, here's some pain points in our starter kit. Let's make it better and let's iterate. But we know any future thing that we do benefits from all the decisions, all the blog posts we read, all the the team's knowledge is encapsulated in this one place. Very cool. So I, um, yeah, like, I, I'm sorry, we don't have enough time to, to keep on going. I do have some more questions, but. I really appreciate you, Corey, coming on uh, to chat about some of these things. And thanks for uh, making or helping build the JavaScript community in Kansas City, specifically React. I'm a big fan. <laughs> so I noticed your shirt. Yeah, yes. yeah. So uh, cool. Thank you very much, Corey. Thanks we'll for having me, man. <laughs> okay, next we have Nate. Come on down, Nate. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show, sure. Nate. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Nate, do you want to give us a quick introduction to yourself, uh, who you are, where you work, what, what kinds of things you're interested in? Sure, yeah. So, I've been doing software development professionally for about 15, 16 years now. I've um, been doing it not professionally for about 30 years, you know, started as a, as a little kid. Uh, I work at a consulting company up in Omaha, Nebraska called Aperture, um, and we do a lot of, we do everything. We do defense contracts, we do commercial, and we do startup work. Um, we help, we actually invest in startups and help them get going. Um, you know, they've got the idea, they don't know how to do it. Um, and so I've covered the gamut, started as a C++ developer, then did WinForms in, in .NET, and then finally moved to the web only about four years ago. Um, and so it's been, it's, I've only actually committed HTML, CSS, or JavaScript within the last four years, despite doing this for about 15, 16 years. Wow, yeah, I have um, even less experience doing uh, development in general than you have with just JavaScript. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, very cool. So here at the conference, I believe you have two talks. I have three, actually. Three but talks, yeah. okay. So uh, one of them is about Ramda and yes. functional programming. Can you talk about that for a sec? Sure, yeah. So uh, actually what happened was I went out to lunch one day with a friend that works at Mozilla, and he was the kind of guy that, he was the guy that kind of got me into JavaScript, and I was talking about Lodash, and he said, well, you should check out Ramda. So I went back to the office that day and started looking at Ramda, and I remember emailing him and going, this looks like the same thing as Lodash. Why is this better? And he kind of challenged me to look at it a little bit more, and he sent me some code examples. And I started seeing the functional paradigms that come out when you use Ramda.js, and it started changing my mind of how to write software. Um, and it's functional programming is something I've been interested in. Um, I, I found Haskell maybe six years ago and just could never make it click in my head. Um, and so JavaScript was kind of the gateway for me to start understanding the functional nature of programming. Uh, and, and so Ramda has just been a library that I've been using there to, to really nail down how to do functional programming. And so in the talk, we covered that Ramda's three overarching concerns were um, uh, uh, immutability, uh, currying, and function composition. And when you start combining those things, the code gets easier to, to see, it gets easier to read, and it should reduce bugs because of those things. Now, some idea just popped into my head. Um, it, it seems like in the earlier days, um, people spent a lot of time uh, in programming thinking about like how can I make this fast they just spent as like at, at the like uh, hazard everything else I just want to make this fast and so they didn't really care quite as much about the readability of the code now it seems like um, let's think about making uh, the code fast later if it becomes a problem let's right. focus on readability maintainability of the code base would you say that's kind of why functional programming has been taking off recently 
Um, I think so. I think also that functional programming's got some ability, uh, depending on the language that you're doing, but it's got some ability to, to handle some of the speed as well. So um, a, a functional language I'm playing with right now, and it's when I say playing, like within the last month, is Elixir, and it's built on the Erlang VM. And so the way I'd like to describe it is Erlang was built for massively distributed systems to run concurrently. And if you think of your CPU, it's a it's a massively distributed system on one processor, right? Because you have all these yeah, cores. Sure. And so Elixir takes advantage of that. And so it can spin things off and do all these different things. And so I was actually reading a book about it. And this guy did the Fibonacci of 2000. And the thing actually processed, right? And you think about how many times it finished. It finished, right. <laughs> and so I think that's, I mean, functional programming uh, reduces, I think, reduces bugs. Um, it's re more readable. But then I think there's some benefits, too, that can make it uh, you know, more performant. Again, depending on the language, you can. You can make it slower as well, I suppose. Sure. Yeah, I mentioned so. Like all, in in JavaScript context, I was thinking like all this currying, you're you're setting up a whole lot of like state in memory. Yeah. Just to you know uh, do some calculations, but really like most of the time, you don't need to worry about the performance optimizations, even in that kind of a scenario. Right. Yeah. So when I write my code, I think most of the time I optimize first of all if it's testable. Uh, Very then, good. Then yeah. second of all, is it readable? And then if I need to, I can optimize for speed um, because the, the, the places that I'm going to need to optimize for speed are fewer and farther between than the places I need to make sure it's readable and testable. Um, and so that's kind of at least how I approach software. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. So let's uh, talk about your other talks now. I can't quite remember. No, that's fine. Uh, so another one, the one I gave yesterday was uh, how TDD improved my quality of life. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love that talk title. Let's talk about that. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't do TDD for a long time. Um, and, and I had the same developer frustrations that everyone has where I make a change over here and it breaks something over here. And so when I fix it here, it broke it here. Right. And, it, and you're, the, so frustrating. you're the kid sticking your finger in the dams. Right. And you run out of <laughs> fingers and you're like, I don't know what to do. Right. And, and so that's really what pushed me going in that direction. And so I started looking back over the last four or five years, six years of doing TDD and realized that my life is major, not measurably, but my life is better than it was. Um, I don't go home grouchy. I know when I fix something. I know when I break something because my tests break. Uh, and I also know what I did at the end of the day. And so one of the tips I like to give people is if you're doing TDD and you're going to stop for lunch or a meeting or you're going to go home, stop with a failing test. When you come back in the morning or when you come back after lunch, you know what you were working on. Even if you don't know exactly, you know, I have to make that test pass. Uh, and so there was, it was tips like that. And it was, it was things like that, that, you know, I've just showed you, this is one way of, of looking at TDD um, because I think too many of the talks on a lot of that kind of stuff is like, well, you should be doing this. Yeah. It's very much shaming. Like. Right. <laughs> and, and so I want to turn it around and, and I don't even want to necessarily focus on the details of how to do it, but I want to get people excited about it. Like this is something I, I, I want that. I want to, I want to not know, or I want to not be breaking stuff constantly. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it, it's much more of a focus of that. Here's, here's some of the things I'm getting out of this. And, some of them, I think, are prescriptive. Some of them are just going to describe my experience, right? So I'm not, I'm not guaranteeing everyone's going to have all these benefits, but I have, and other people will have as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I, I actually really like that idea of leave work with failing tasks. Like that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I, I actually going off on that, we talked a little bit um, during breakfast yesterday, yeah. I think, um, and. I find it a lot easier to do test-driven development in uh, my libraries or in utility functions than I do in like a, a UI-centric um, library even or application. Sure. Um, so do you have any tips on, or, or is it even useful in an application context? And if it is useful, do you have tips on how sure. to make that easier? And I think that's a common pain point that a lot of people have um, because I think a lot of times when we start getting away from the UI, we start thinking more of the... Um, pure functions, right? I'm giving it this input, I'm taking this output, and we can start thinking of processing that. And I actually did an interview one time, uh, and they at, at the end of the interview, they said, if we hire you, would you want to do front-end or back-end? 
I didn't even pause. I said back end and they were why everyone wants to do the front end. I was like, I know when the back end's right, you know, cause I can, I can, you can give me these inputs or whatever. And so I was that way for a long time too. And I think what finally started working for me was, you know, I think it was uncle Bob or Martin Fowler. One of them talked about designing design to an interface. And so uncle Bob says, how do you test that you have a piece of software that rings the bell? How do you test that the bell rings? Well, you can, but it's gonna be a lot of setup. And so probably what's better is that you test that the message got sent to the thing that rings the bell. And then every once in a while you run the, the whole program and make sure the bell rings and or write so, an integration test or write an integration yeah. test. Right. Yeah. And so that's what I do a lot. I, I test a lot of, you know, my view model or what's going to be backing that view, um, both directions. And, and then I don't really care so much about what the UI looks like. I don't necessarily care about the classes. I'm not going to test that this has the red class or this has the large class, but I'm going to make sure that my model is, is largely there. And that was something I actually started doing before I started doing JavaScript. I started doing it with, um, .NET razor views. Um, so I figured if I can have my entire view class tested, then I know reasonably well that my view is what I want. And then I can spend more time just, okay, let's get these things lined up. Let's play around with the HTML. Um, and so that's, that's how I approach it. Um, and so I end up, I think we talked, you start on the view. I start on the logic of the UI and move forward. Um, but I've talked to other people that start on the view as well that are, are huge TDD proponents. So it's not, I don't think you have to change how you do it. Um, it's just, I don't know. It's one of those things that takes practice, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I, I think that I neglected to define TDD. So just in case. Oh yeah. Like not even I, I always get caught on that. Yeah. TDD stands for test driven development and it's just a fantastic way to write. Yeah. Stuff. So, um, we just have a, a minute or two left. Okay. What was your, la uh, your third talk? Yeah. So my third talk's actually coming up right after this. It's on uh, intro to semantic UI. Um, so, oh, right. Yeah. Um, a lot, everyone, almost everyone knows what bootstrap is. Um, and so, so semantic is, it strives to make your marketable and more semantic, um, which is where they get the name. Uh, and so if you want a big button on the big red button, so as you're reading your market, you start to form it in your head without learning another language. Oh, this is probably what my view is going to look like. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Well, uh, good luck on that. Thank you. Talk. Thank you very much for coming. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. See you, Nate. And next, we have Matthew. Thanks for having Why me. Why don't you scoot up a little bit here? Perfect. Cool. Matthew, how yep. are you? Very good. Good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So, um, yeah, just before we like, get into what you're talking about and stuff, um, why don't we get a quick intro to who you are, where you work, what kinds of things you're interested well, in? Well, my name is Matthew Renzi. I'm an independent software consultant and uh, data science consultant with uh, 16 years of professional experience building large-scale data-driven desktop, server, and cloud-based applications. I've got double degrees in computer science and philosophy with a minor in economics. And my focus was on artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, in addition, I'm a uh, Pluralsight author, an ASP insider. Uh, I've written some pretty cool open-source software projects as well. And I'm also an international public speaker. Very cool. So. Even with all of that, you're still being a little bit modest because you have five degrees, right? <laughs> yeah, I actually do. I usually don't tell people that, though. I usually just focus on the the ones that are most important. Uh, but yeah, the other the other three degrees, I have an uh, associate of science in management and information systems, an associate of arts in uh, oh, associate of science in business administration, and an associate of arts in liberal arts as well. Okay, I'm a master of information systems. So Excellent. You and I have that really uh, yep, in yep. common. Very cool. So. Um, 
Matthew, why don't uh, you're you're here to talk about data science, mm -hmm. uh, data visualizations, um, and specifically about R was uh, what your talk was about. Yeah. So at this conference, um, I'm specifically talking about uh, data science topics. Uh, in general, though, I typically talk about like agile software practices in addition to codes craftsmanship, uh, and it's all kind of centered around data science as well too. Uh, but uh, I did a, a full day workshop on uh, practical data science with R, where we kind of walked through uh, from the beginnings of like, what is data science? Uh, what is this uh, R programming language, which it's a statistical programming language uh, that's really popular now for doing data science, data visualization, slicing and dicing data and all these things. And we walked through the process of like transforming and cleaning data, uh, getting into descriptive statistics and how to kind of quickly summarize the shape and feel of the data numerically, how to create data visualizations, and then go further into statistical modeling, uh, machine learning, how to handle big data scenarios in R, and then end with uh, like kind of R in practice, like how do you deploy R into production with servers and build interactive web UIs and stuff that, that have kind of R behind it. So. Cool. Yeah, that, that's the layer that I'm kind of interested in. So this is a JavaScript show. Yep, um, and yep. So R sounds really interesting, um, but most of our viewers or listeners yep. probably aren't familiar with it or necessarily like it's not exactly practical for their day job. Yep. So um, at what point does uh, this become relevant to front end and, and or even node uh, JavaScript developers? So I think there's three ways that I see R being practical uh, or at least valuable to the viewers. Um, the first is that uh, anytime you learn a new programming language, it kind of changes the way you think about your existing programming languages. There's certain features in R that don't exist in just about any other language, like the fact that it's a vectorized language, which I really don't have time to explain why that is, but um, it, it makes programming programming entirely different and you think entirely in terms of like functional programming with these vectors. So for example, in R, if you're ever writing a for loop, you are almost certainly doing something wrong. And so, um, yeah, you just, you never have to do it because everything is a, a vector of size one, even the primitive data types are essentially vectors of size one. So like no arrays or? Uh, well, essentially like, a vector being a uh, homogeneous array of okay. one dimension. Oh, and then okay. we have matrices, uh, data frames, which is a tabular structure. Mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so if you if you have an opportunity to play around with a language like R, you'll start thinking about your own language in different ways. It's like, oh well, you know, maybe I could make the the language you know do it kind of this way because it's really easy in R to do it like that. Yeah, or, that makes sense. For example, the concept like a uh, a data frame in R, which is like a table, is uh, organized in such a way that makes slicing and dicing data extremely easy. So we see other languages starting to uh, incorporate the same concepts. Like there's this, I believe it's called Pandas in uh, the Python language now, does essentially data framework. And I'm assuming something like that will come along in, in JavaScript before too long, uh, especially if, if more and more people that are interested in data science and, and working with data uh, are you know switching over building systems entirely in JavaScript since it's kind of taking over the world. Mm -hmm. uh, the second uh, way I see it being important is, so I, I use like C Sharp as my primary uh, bread and butter language and I have to do a lot of JavaScript when building like web UIs, but uh, using R to do uh, the kind of data work. So essentially you're, you're still programming in JavaScript, but you know, you've got these little data sets you need to figure stuff out, like whether it be, you know, the telemetry for uh, your website or, you know, even like click analysis. And it's like, I've got this data, but to write a program that would kind of slice and dice the data and create a visualization in JavaScript would take way too long. So it's sure. like, well, I'll just kind of use this language on the side just for my data tasks, but JavaScript is still my main language. That makes sense. And the third way you could potentially use it is if you're building a web-based um, data visualizations, you can use R under the hood in the server in order to do kind of the big number crunching, the stuff it's really good at generate data visualizations as like a SVG files, and then just have those SVGs from a web service just work with them in JavaScript. So yeah, having R on the, R on the server and then do all the JavaScript stuff on the front end and build completely interactive web-based UIs.
Cool. Yeah, I, I like this idea of using uh, the right tool for the job. Yep. Um, it seems like R is a fantastic tool for data uh, analysis and visualizations even. Yeah. Um, so very cool. So um, another thing that you're kind of passionate about, you talk a lot about, is uh, clean code. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to talk about, like, why is clean code important? Why do I care? Why can't I just, like, turn out <laughs> a bunch of crazy code and, and ship it off? Uh, well, clean code, at least as I see it, is a philosophy of writing code for the reader of the code rather than for the author or for the machine. And by uh, the author, I'm essentially saying, you know, we, we don't want to be writing code that's the way we like it, the way we prefer. Like terse or like really yes, short, yes. short variable names because I don't like typing. Or because I think I'm really clever, so I'm just going to yeah, use these names that no one else is going to understand. Or, or using features of the language that are kind of like yep, obscure. obscure. Yep, yeah, yep. yeah. Uh, JavaScript has plenty of those. Yes. Yeah, there are many ways to shoot yourself in the foot in JavaScript as well as many other languages. Uh, and by not writing for the machine, and the, the uh, previous uh, gentleman that was speaking uh, kind of alluded to this as well, too. We, we want to avoid premature optimization. Uh, machines are really good at processing things very fast, and the machines are getting faster and faster. We don't have to worry about really small footprint kind of source code running on like embedded systems, at least with most of the software development, enterprise development we're doing. So essentially by focusing for the reader, you're essentially optimizing, taking the the economics of software development into consideration. Because when you look at the, the cost to create software, you know, you can write, you can write code really fast if you just use short terse things. But if you spend way more time maintaining the code, which we do based on empirical evidence, then um, you are actually optimizing economically to focus on the maintenance, which by having really clean, readable code, you're essentially optimizing then for maintainability because someone else can go in there, they can look at the code and they can quickly figure things out. And this is largely to do with the kind of psychology of, of code. The, the amount of time you spend uh, writing code is roughly like 10 the amount of time you spend reading code is roughly 90%. That's very interesting. Yep. And so this, this is, is from a study. Uh, it's that That's actually anecdotal evidence. Um, I think it's uh, both uh, Mark, no, no, uh, Uncle Bob has mentioned it. And I think maybe McConnell did in, in code, uh, code complete too. I, I don't quote me on that though. It but sounds right to me. There is actually empirical evidence though that we spend uh, significantly more time maintaining software than we do creating it for enterprise applications with over like a 10 year life cycle. It's uh, usually around like 20% uh, is actually in the creation of the code and 80% in the maintenance, somewhere between. Still like yeah, this, this, is, this is something to talk about for sure. Yes, yeah. So, and th this is one of the things that I really, um, I'm trying to think of how to word this. Uh, one of the things I really bring is value to a lot of the organizations that I do consulting for is, uh, you know, my background in economics. So I'm always thinking about software development in economic terms, which is the language that the business is thinking as well. So being able to uh, make arguments, economic cases, uh, to the business saying that, you know, well, this is why code quality is important because we want to reduce the overall, you know, cost of creating this software over the life of the project, not just writing the features and getting them out the door initially, but, you know, someone's going to have to maintain this. And if it's going to cost you, you know, 10 times more to maintain it than it would if we just spend a bit extra time now getting the quality right, um, you know, it's, it's a no-brainer once you understand the, the full economic Yeah, and I think, uh, like, business people get uh, investment and return on investment yep. as well. So, yeah, uh, if you, and, uh, like, I think if you're having a hard time in your company convincing people, like, testing is important mm -hmm. or whatever, just bring it back to business terms and, like, this will literally cost you more money in the future. Yes. And, and this is why the the technical debt metaphor I think works so well when communicating. You know, well, well, why do we need to you know like uh, use clean code, and well, why do we need to do TDD? Well, because every time you don't do that, you're essentially uh, taking out a loan in the long term of the software, and you're going to continue to pay more and more interest. 
And this interest typically compounds exponentially, or at least super linearly. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. And so at some point in time, you end up uh, having this you know, grand redesign in the sky because you've, you've uh, put off quality for so long that the whole system is just collapsing under its own weight. And we see this happen way too many times. It is, is a software, uh, it, software development as a profession. This should not be happening anymore but we're a relatively immature industry yet. And so I think we're really trying to figure this out. And by doing these practices like TDD, which I honestly believe TDD will be kind of a, uh, the bare minimum entry for any software development in the near future. I don't know if this is gonna take five years or 10 years, but I think it will be the exact same thing with the accounting. Essentially, you know, you couldn't go into any business in the world and say, well, I, I don't believe in double entry accounting. Like I'm, I just enter the numbers once and they're, they're gonna be right. They would be like, no, you are not an accountant. Like, you <laughs> cannot be an accountant. So the double entry accounting system works so well because you know by entering these numbers you know, twice in the, the duplicate ledgers, the math eventually all works out to the end. This is essentially a metaphor for TDD. By writing the test cases, what should the code be doing and writing the code itself to match those test cases, we're essentially doing double entry accounting in our code. And in the future, I think it'll be the same way. Like you cannot be a professional software developer unless you are doing TDD. That's very interesting. I'm not 100% convinced, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll see what the future holds. Five, 10 I, years, we'll, we'll put a wager on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a fan of, of the, the practice. Um, cool. So I, I think we're, we're about out of time, but is there anything else that you'd like to bring up? Um, no, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Yeah, this other than great. KCDC is a great conference. This is honestly the best conference I've been to. I did a, a, a full day workshop, an hour presentation. I was on a, a panel in front of 1,600 people over lunch. Well, with you, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, the interview here. So it's been a great time. It has been a good time. Thank you awesome. for coming. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. And finally, we have Kirsten. Come on over, Kirsten. Thank you so much for showing up. I uh, appreciate you having you. Looks like your uh, soda bottle that's there is kind of deformed a little yeah. bit. <laughs> it's, it's sort of... Uh, Exploded, yeah. sort of. <laughs> Exploded a bit, but yeah. it's still tasty, so cool. it'll work out. Cool. Why don't we scoot into the okay. camera a little bit more? Hey. Cool. So, um, yeah, Kirsten, why don't we get an introduction to yourself a little bit, who you are, where you work, what kinds of things are you interested in? Well, I'm Kirsten Hunter. I'm an API evangelist for Akamai. And um, one of the things I do is I go around and I travel to our customer sites and give them free boot camps on our APIs. But the other thing I do is I go to conferences and I teach people how to create and use APIs. Um, I have um, over 10 years of experience with REST APIs, which means I got excited about APIs before they were the big thing. And now they're the new hotness. And, uh, and I have a great time going around and helping people learn how to use APIs and get excited about what they can do with them. Awesome. So um, I want to talk with you about your talk about becoming a polyglot programmer. But uh, just to continue on the API love for a second, um, you do have a book about um, APIs. Can you talk about that for a sec? Yeah, I've created a book called Irresistible APIs. I, one of the things I used to say is that I go around and I talk to companies about how to make APIs that don't make developers cry, and then uh, telling developers how to use APIs without crying. So on the first note, um, I've created this book. It's about the process of creating an API that has a fantastic developer experience, because that's the number one um, indicator that you're going to have a successful API. And it goes through business value metrics, use cases, uh, schema modeling, and uh, how, to, how to just have a fantastic developer experience so that it's fun for people to use. 
Now, are these like uh, program programmatic APIs or HTTP APIs? What kind of generally? APIs? It's focused on REST APIs. Most of the the concepts would work for any kind of API. And the book is called Irresistible APIs, and you can find it at irresistibleapis.com. So um, it's actually available on Manning Early Access Program right now, and it will be in paper form uh, at the end of August. Uh, I already have an Amazon page, which I'm super excited about. Very cool. Yeah, one of these days I will get an Amazon. Page. <laughs> Very cool. So let's talk about becoming a polyglot programmer. I think this is something that at least I, as a kind of a new developer, I don't have experience in, but I can sense the value of. So why is it important? Well, maybe we should define what polyglot programmer is, and then we can talk about why it's important. Right. So polyglot usually means spoken languages, but we have languages in programming. Um, and one of the things I noticed was that we have a lot of people who believe that they can only program in one language. And it's not true, uh, especially with interpreted languages, Python, Perl, Ruby, um, uh, JavaScript, JavaScript <laughs> and PHP, um, all of those languages are very similar. It's much more like a dialect. So it's much more like, you know, someone from the from Brooklyn trying to talk to someone from the deep south. You know, they might struggle a little bit, but you can see what it's what's happening there and you can port it over to your language. Um, one of the things I do as an API evangelist is I create a lot of sample code and I tend to create it in Python because that's the easiest one to read when you don't know how to use it. But I have people who are just they're reluctant to even take a look at the code and see what it's doing and try to bring it into their own language. And, you know, I really want us to be in a world where people feel comfortable looking at other languages. And then the other side of the coin is we have these siloed communities for each of the languages and we end up with, you know, people bagging on other languages or thinking their language is the only possible language. And I think that if we came together as one big development community, web development community, we could solve the most amazing problems. We're generally solving the same problems. So, um, you know, I, I really want to encourage people to to think beyond their language and, and uh, think about the community as a whole. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So what would you say to somebody who is just like, I would actually rather just focus on one and get really, really, really good at that is there any pitfalls that they would have or, or like, is there any problem with that kind of an attitude? Well, um, there's there are things that you might do that would be more appropriate in certain languages. So if you're a Perl programmer or a Ruby programmer and you want to do some really complicated um, uh, matrix multiplication, you really probably want to look at Python. It's just easier. And um, sometimes there's a better tool for the job. And sometimes you're going to be handed some code that comes from a different language than you're used to. And you need to maintain it. Well, maintaining existing code is really not that hard. It's already written. And so you can usually figure out how to take it and, and uh, make sure that it continues to work the way it needs to. But if you're really reluctant to try those other languages, it can seem like it's going to be a huge difficulty. And it's, it's really not. Now, you had, uh, did you have three talks or just the two? I have three. Three talks. What was your third talk? Um, quantifying your fitness. Oh, of course, yes. And I, I saw this one at Space City. It's it's fantastic. And you haven't yet get, given it, right? No, I, I got my bag of goodies over there. Uh, very good. Do you want to talk about that for a sec? Yeah, so um, I have a Node.js application that's running on Modulus. Modulus is a great hosting platform similar to uh, Heroku, but uh, Heroku really focuses on uh, Python and Ruby. Uh, Modulus really loves Node. 
and the logging is fantastic. So what I do is I have my Fitbit. So I have my Fitbit here. It's the Blaze. And um, I have the node server is watching to see when there's an update to my activity. When there is, it counts to see how I'm doing in terms of eating protein and burning calories for the day. And if I'm not keeping up, then I get SMS messages that remind me to do so. And during the day, um, my Philips Hue light bulbs also change color. So they start at red and then they go orange and yellow and green um, to just give me some positive feedback to know kind of where I am. Hey, you know, I'm sitting here in my office, I'm working and my lights are still orange. <laughs> I need to get up and walk around or probably I should eat some lunch. Um, so, you know, it's it's a, it's a pretty fun talk and it's live demo with Philips Hue lights and nobody doesn't love it, so. Yeah, that, I, I thought it was kind of entertaining. Now, is it 100% in Node or are there other technologies you have it's to use? It's 100% in Node. Um, I did actually, I mean, it's, it's interfacing with a bunch of APIs. So it interfaces directly with the Fitbit API, with the Twilio API, and I uh, sort of hacked the the Philips Hue API, uh, I pretended I was an iPhone. So you can actually <laughs> nice. do local stuff with your Philips Hue light bulb pretty easily. And I'm gonna demonstrate that at the, at the talk. But uh, remote access, you have to go through if this and that or use the iPhone. And um, I wanted everything to run in the cloud. I didn't wanna have to run something at home. Mm -hmm. So to solve that problem, I, I reverse engineered their API so that I could make my lights change color from wherever I was. Very cool. I hope they never make a breaking change for you. <laughs> cool. Um, well, Kirsten, is there anything else that you'd like to uh, mention to the viewers? Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, the one thing that I'd like to mention is um, I have a survey about the different languages. Um, mostly it's the interpreted languages, but if you use Haskell or Go, uh, you're welcome to put information in there as well. It's a five-minute survey. It asks you what language you use, what do you think the language is great for, what do you think about the community, and what could be improved. And if you fill out the form, then you're entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. So it's a pretty good use of your five minutes. Um, in order to find it, go to princesspolymath.com and then click on the money. <laughs> Very good. All right. Um, great. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thanks really for having me. It. And uh, we'll see you around the conference. Awesome. Thanks. Bye. And uh, yeah, that's our that's our show. Uh, so just a couple of brief closing announcements. So um, we have a silver sponsor, Trading Technologies. They're super awesome and hiring. So check them out. Um, and then we are a weekly show, so remember next week we're doing um, web animations with a couple like gurus on the subject. Uh, it will be at the normal time, so on Wednesday at uh, noon uh, central time. And then, um, yeah, go to suggest.javascriptair.com if you have suggestions for the show, uh, guests or topics, go to feedback.javascriptair.com to give us feedback about this show. I especially want to get feedback about conference shows because they're kind of unique. Um, and then uh, go to jsair.io slash email to sign up for our newsletter. And that's it. So thank you very much. And we'll see you all later.